Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Connecticut state senators have a bill before them to authorize bear hunting. Do the numbers of black bears in the state warrant a hunting season? We'll find out from state environmental officials and hear why some residents oppose the idea. Now, have you seen a black bear in your backyard? Were you afraid or curious? We want to hear from you, too. You can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, today, Where We Live, we wanted to learn more about black bears and help answer your questions. We invited Dr. Ben Killam onto the show. He spent a long time studying black bears near his New Hampshire home. Dr. Killam is called the bear whisperer by some, the bear man by others. He's the author of several books, including In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. He joins us today from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Norwich, Vermont. Dr. Killam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've made a career studying bears. Uh, I understand for 20 years you've acted as a, a surrogate to orphan black bears, and you've been able to observe their habits, uh, their interactions, their biology. How did that all begin for you? Well, it's, it's I grew up with my father, Lawrence Killam, who was a professor uh, of virology at the Dartmouth Medical School and studied birds as an avocation. So I grew up in a household with lots of wild animals around. When I was two, my dad went on sabbatical to Africa and brought a half-grown leopard into the house, much to my mother's chagrin. My younger sister, Phoebe, who helps me with the bears today, was one at the time, and my next oldest brother, Josh, was four, and he woke up one night with a leopard at the end of his bed. But needless to say, we all survived and returned from Africa with two African hornbills and a Nile crocodile that my dad raised in a basement shower until it was six feet long, and the National Zoo came and picked it up. In 1961, we came to New Hampshire, and my dad continued his studies with uh, birds, uh, primarily birds, but we had uh, porcupines and red fox and woodchucks and all kinds of native wildlife. My dad wrote a book on the life histories of the woodpeckers of the eastern United States as well as a book on crows and ravens. Uh, so it's pretty much uh, the way I grew up. Mm -hmm. And when my time came along, I was interested in carnivores. And at the time, there was no formal rehabilitation of bears. Uh, I was interested in perhaps a, a coyote or a bobcat or maybe a fisher, the large woodland weasel we have around here. And my plan was to, uh, because of my experience with orphan animals, I knew I could uh, walk orphan animals loose in the forest and they'd follow me and I could observe their juvenile behaviors and use them to understand adult behaviors. But it turned out it was black bears that came to me, and black bears were the ideal animal to study in this fashion. You said black uh, bears. Long, you said black bears came to you, so you were uh, rehabilitating other uh, wild we animals. We were rehabilitating other animals, and uh, uh, their uh, uh, conservation officer brought us an eleven-month-old black bear cub that he thought had been hit by a car, and it turned out it it had not been hit by a car. It had no infectious disease, uh, but it had the shakes and couldn't climb or stay on a branch. 
and that animal was quickly confiscated from me, but later that spring the director of Fish and Wildlife in New Hampshire called me up and asked me to take the bear back. Uh, and we kept it and observed it until eventually it had to be euthanized, and we sent its brain out to the wildlife disease lab in Wyoming and got a diagnosis of lysosomal storage disease, uh, which is like Tay-Sachs in humans and caused by inbreeding. Uh, this was interesting. It was the first documented case, and since then there have been two more cases in New Hampshire, two in Massachusetts, one in Maine, and more recently one in Wyoming. And it's likely caused by the fact that in the 1850s, 85% uh, of New England was open agricultural land. The forest habitat of the black bear was greatly diminished and fragmented, so it, it led to isolated populations of black bears where this type of inbreeding might have occurred. Hmm. You you first wrote your book in 2013. At that time, uh, you did not have your Ph.D. Uh, in fact, you've been very open about um, having dyslexia and how um, that at one point stopped you from pursuing advanced degrees. But how did having dyslexia um, impact the way that you interacted with these bears, the observations that you made over the last couple of decades? Well, one of the advantages of dyslexia is that we have other skills, and the skill to uh, make very precise uh, observations, I think, in pictures. So I, I, I could go for a walk with my cubs, and, and uh, I'd pay attention to anything that, that's, that stuck out, and I would come back, and I wouldn't take any field notes on the walk, which is distracting. And then I'd sit down and rewalk my walk. A video would play in my head, and I could see in precise detail uh, what took place during the walk. So I, I could be very descriptive and very accurate uh, with my observations. Mm. So you've been taking care of how many cubs to date now through the years? We're uh, over 150 black bear cubs have been uh, brought up by us and released to the wild. Mm. Now, is that um, considered unconventional, this idea that you're helping raise these cubs, uh, but then releasing them back into the wild? Are these bears, in fact, still wild because they've gotten used to you? Well, the, the cubs <coughs> come in, come in in all different stages. Some of them are, are very young. Before they left, have left uh, the den with their mother, they have no experience outside the den. Uh, we had two cubs arrive this morning uh, where somebody had shot the mother uh, these cubs are now uh, five months old. Uh, they're going to be very, very wild on coming in because of their experience, uh, a traumatic experience of losing their mother in that fashion. Uh, but we have some bottle-fed cubs, which will quickly uh, mix with them. Our experience is that bears want to be bears, and if they're exposed to the natural environment, that's what they'll do. We have done enough cubs now, uh, uh, and with all different age groups. Um, the most difficult, obviously, are the bottle-fed cubs. Uh, the ones that have more experience with the mother are, are much easier. Uh, but experience tells us that it's successful. And uh, the, the Fish and Game Departments of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts wouldn't still be sending cubs to us uh, if there was any problem uh, with the work that we do. One of those cubs uh, that you helped uh, years ago uh, was Squirty. Tell us about this particular bear. Well, Squirty came to me uh, when she weighed three pounds and was seven weeks old. Her eyes had just opened. 
Uh, I raised her by walking her in the forest and documenting her behavior, giving her an opportunity to, lear to learn and giving myself an opportunity to, to learn as well. I put a radio collar on her and tracked her as she uh, became an adult, sub-adult, and then an adult and moved into the forest. Uh, Squirty uh, established her own home range, and as she expanded that home range, she would drop a daughter into the expanded area to hold the expanded area. Squirty uh, now shares her home range with many uh, adult daughters and granddaughters in what I call a greater home range. And she has manages that home range with a matrilinear hierarchy where Squirty is the matriarch and on site will chase uh, any of her daughters uh, uh, that she meets in her home range. And it, it's a matrilinear hierarchy because the number two female chases all the females below her, the number three female chases all the females below her, and the last female, who is generally a sub-adult, gets chased by all the adult females. And uh, this ensures that in a, in a marginal food year that at least one of these females uh, will have access to enough food to reproduce. Uh, but it does a second thing. It, it creates space for these females that, have, that don't have their own home range uh, to survive and stay within uh, this matriarchal home range. And because of the pressure, uh, normally they would have, if they had an open home range, they would give birth at age three. Uh, these females may not give birth until they're four, five, six, or in even one case, even seven years old. And uh, their opportunity will be based on a natural food supply. An abundant uh, crop of acorns or beech nuts uh, will allow them that opportunity to reproduce. This is where we live. We're speaking with Dr. Benjamin Killam today, a wildlife biologist, author of the book In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. He joins us today from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Norwich, uh, Vermont. Uh, now, uh, Ben, the reason we're talking with you today, so often this time of year, people are seeing uh, bears in their backyards. Uh, there's a debate going on in Connecticut uh, whether there should be hunting. We'll talk about that a little bit later. You've observed and learned so much uh, through uh, the work that you've done, what is something that you've learned that pushes back against uh, what typical um, scientists think about black bears? Well, when I started uh, working with black bears uh, and working very closely with them, uh, black bears were considered to be solitary animals. That is, the only interactions they had with their own kind was with their cubs and their mates during the mating season. They knew they gathered at concentrated food sources, uh, but they, beyond that, they knew very little about them. And what I found is that bears are, black bears are actually highly social animals, but they're not social in the manner that we typically think of a pack of wolves or a group of chim chimpanzees that have fixed territories and family units that live within those territories, alpha animals that regulate the resources down through the family group. Black bears are more social uh, the way that humans are. I found that the females are reciprocal altruists. They form friendships with unrelated females. Uh, because of their food supply is, is uh, unevenly distributed on the landscape and their home ranges uh, are, are evenly distributed on the landscape, it creates situations where one female may have a huge surplus of food in her, her home range, like a big acorn crop, and the neighboring female may have nothing. And in, a, in the next year, the neighboring female may have a huge crop of beech nuts, 
and uh, the, the bear with the acorns would have nothing. Uh, so they form relationships so they can share each other's resources uh, on a year-to-year -year basis. They remember these uh, females. They remember the fact that they uh, are, not, are not aggressive towards them, and they actually welcome them into each other's home range. And I found that the amount of aggression that Squirty shows towards the unrelated females, and there's a group of unrelated females that are all related to a bear that did Squirty a favor when she was a cub, uh, she shows very little aggression towards them, yet she chases her family members on sight. And this is, there's a huge parallel between this and human behavior, because if we think about it, we're much harsher on our family members than we are on strangers. And the reason we're harsh on our family members is because they're our closest cooperators. And, and we can react any way we wish. And we can, we can often react harshly and get away with it because we can always reconcile with a family member. But strangers are also cooperators. And we never act harshly towards a stranger because we might not be able to reconcile. And so this same pattern of behavior exists in both black bears and humans. Do you think Squirty sees you as a member of her family? Squirty definitely sees me as a member of her family, and because I raised her, she treats me like a bear. Uh, unfortunately, she's dominant over me. She's still the matriarch. I'm number two, uh, and I'm dominant over all the other bears, all of her family members, and uh, the unrelated females uh, that come in uh, to her home range. They're all intimidated by me, but because I raised Squirty, she's not intimidated by me, and I have to obey her rules. She judges and punishes uh, based on a set of rules, which she also manages her female uh, relatives with. And as soon as I learn the rules, I don't have to deal with any, any punishment by her. Uh, but with Squirty, a punishment is a bite, and with her relatives, she chases them. They're fast enough, they're young, they're lighter, uh, they can run faster and then climb and get out further out on a limb uh, uh, than Squirty can get. So they rarely get bit, but as a human, I can't run, so I have to be careful around her. Her rules are very simple. Basically, if she's interacting with another bear in a social encounter, I'm not to interfere, and I've learned that the hard way, but you only have to get bit once uh, to understand what rules are. So you've and been bitten rules, by Squirty. I've been bitten by her. Uh, they're, they're punishment bites. She bites and then uh, goes right into a reconciliation moan, uh, making up to it, saying basically that was necessary and I'm terribly sorry. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Dr. Ben Killam is on, uh, is actually talking with us from the studios of Vermont Public Radio, a wildlife biologist, author of the book, In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. Um, he spent uh, more than two decades observing bears, also serving as a surrogate mother for orphan bear cubs that he has then reintroduced back into the wild. Now, after the break, we're going to find out more about black bears in Connecticut with state wildlife biologist Paul Rigo. Have you seen bears in your backyard. Join the conversation. That's coming up. Doing all the black bear things a black bear just might do.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about black bears. By now they've emerged from hibernation. Their breeding season begins in late June and July, early July, according to the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Now, officials at the state agency say the black bear population is growing in Connecticut. Does that mean lawmakers should allow bear hunting? We'll find out coming up later in the show. Now, to help us learn more about black bears, today from the studios of Vermont Public Radio, biologist and author Dr. Ben Killam is here. He's studied bears for years in the woods of New Hampshire near his home. He's taken care of orphan cubs, released them back into the wild. He talks about his experiences and what he's learned in the book In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. Now, you too can join the conversation, the number 860-275-7266. You can also find us on where we on, on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Killam, um, should humans be fearful of the bears they may see walking through their backyard? Humans don't need to be fearful, and and they actually are safer around bears if they're not. Uh, The people that get in trouble panic and and often run and show weakness. Uh, If if you want to get along with a bear, if you have a a close encounter, and they rarely happen, uh, you want to stand your ground, uh, stay dominant, keep your eyes on the bear, and talk softly to it. Bears understand our emotional communication, our facial expressions, the intonation of our voice. They won't understand our words, but they'll understand body language and all other aspects of communication. Unfortunately, we think bears are from Mars. We don't understand their bluff charges, the way they chomp their teeth. Uh, I've spent an awful lot of time in my book and in the films that I've done talking about how bears communicate. The more people know about how bears communicate, the easier they time they will have uh, when they have a a close encounter with them. Now, uh, we've heard um, from listeners and just people that I know, um, if they have a dog and sometimes there's that interaction, what do you do then if your dog is out in the yard and a bear happens to be uh, nearby, especially this time of year if there are cubs near the mother? Well, the the biggest thing is not to have food attractants in your yard so you don't have those kind of interactions. Uh, Bears uh, belong in the forest. They're very secretive animals. They don't come out unless they're food attractants. And if people are regularly having bears in their yard, uh, they're doing something wrong. They either have bird feeders or uncontrolled garbage or, or their dog food is stored on a on an airy porch where bears can smell it or their neighbors are doing something wrong. Uh, bears uh, naturally are secretive. Uh, they, ha- they have no interest in, in humans, but they have a lot of interest in human foods. And bears get friendly quicker than any other uh, animal, and it's based on their social behavior, this business of reciprocal altruism. A bear thinks highly of somebody who feeds them, and they quickly form social contracts. So if somebody has a bear come to their bird feeder and they continue to put their bird feeder out, that bear will develop expectations that that food will be available to them on a regular basis. And that escalates into a bear breaking into homes when the food is not there. Bears will will punish people for not living up to the, the terms of a contract. So it's terribly important that if a bear comes to your house that you clean up all the food and you make it so there's nothing that attracts bears to the, to the property. And if it's a bear's on the way to a neighbor's food, uh, make sure the neighbor cleans up. Uh, these, these are rel- relatively serious things. And it's the, the human rarely gets punished. And I'm a great believer that humans should, on every occasion that a, 
uh, a state officer has to reply to a bear complaint that the human gets fined because it's the human that's causing the attractive. Should be a nominal fine, like $20 a parking ticket. Nobody likes to get a parking ticket. And that would have an impact, a big impact on, on these human, bear human conflicts. But unfortunately, now the bear gets uh, uh, punished, and the bear either gets removed or it gets euthanized uh, for its behavior. Joining the conversation in studio with me now is Paul Rigo, a wildlife biologist at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Paul, welcome to where we live. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I wanted wanted to get a a snapshot of the bear population in Connecticut. What are we seeing? What are you and other officials seeing uh, within the state? Okay. Uh, First, I'd like to say good morning, Ben. I met you many years ago up in the New Hampshire or Vermont area. So good good to hear your voice. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, Um, So in Connecticut, uh, we have a uh, rapidly growing bear population. Um, One of our indices of the population is just the sightings from from the public that we receive and we've been tracking that for three decades and it, it's been just growing uh, almost exponentially. Um, if you go back three decades ago bear sightings were quite rare perhaps a hundred reported sightings a year. If you go back one decade we were at about 2,000 sighting reports per year. Uh, this last year, we almost got to 7,000 sighting reports. That's not 7,000 bears, but sighting reports. And um, in Connecticut, we have a very high human population, um, about, I would say, five times m- denser population of humans than New Hampshire, um, and a, v- a very rapidly growing bear population. So we see lots of interaction between humans and bears. Uh, in fact, I think we receive uh, more... Uh, conflict reports Mm. in our state with uh, a population of bears um, that's uh, probably one-tenth or maybe one-fifth the size of uh, New Hampshire's bear population. So you're saying that um, there are there have been I think I'm looking at the website earlier today um, in the last year there have been 6,400 bear sightings in the state of Connecticut. That does not mean there are that many bears. Uh, but how many bears are in Connecticut? Yeah. What's the estimate? Right, right now um, our estimate is uh, in the neighborhood of 700. Um, it's a, a, a difficult process to to get a real accurate population estimate, but we have uh, we've done it two ways. One, uh, one study conducted at the University of Connecticut that actually finished two years ago, and, and both studies uh, agreed that we're in the neighborhood of 700 bears, um, although that estimate is a couple years old, so no doubt we have more bears now. Now, at one point, there were a lot of bears pre-colonial times, then they were hunted, um, and then the bears left. Um, tell us a little bit about that history and what's okay. making the comeback. Well, uh, Ben touched on that, and that, that's a pattern that occurred throughout New England. Um, uh, pre-colonial times, uh, New England was largely forested, which is the best bear habitat. Um, as, uh, as our part of the country was settled, there, were, there was great removal of forest, land clearing largely for agriculture, but for other purposes such as charcoal production. Um, and so that, that removed bear habitat. In Connecticut, it's thought that we dwindled down to only about 20% forest habitat, down from nearly 100%. So removal of habitat was one big thing. Um, the other thing, uh, as you you call it, you call it hunting. I, I like to call it uh, unregulated unregulated exploitation because bears were 
were not viewed in a good light. A lot of people were farmers and bears represented a, a threat to their crops and their livestock. And uh, bears, bears were not seen in a good light. And if there was an opportunity to kill a bear, they, they were killed. So there was no protection of bears prior to the 1900s. Um, and so those two forces in Connecticut led to the complete extermination of bears from the state. And they're coming back. Why now? Well, um, uh, two, those two factors have been reversed. Um, um, there was un, unregulated exploitation. Now um, bears are protected. In, in most states in their range, there is hunting allowed, but it's regulated. So it, it's uh, kept at a level that uh, hopefully maintains the bear population or, or other goals depending on the state. Some states might hope to reduce their population a bit or grow it a bit. Uh, but then the other big factor is the regrowth of forest. Um, as the Industrial Revolution came along, uh, people no longer had to make their living as, as farmers, uh, especially in this part of the country where there's so many rocks in the soil. Um, and moved to the cities, a lot of the cleared land reverted back to forest and uh, became suitable habitat for bears once, once again. Uh, we heard Ben Killam um, describing earlier uh, why bears come on to uh, a person's property uh, because of food sources. Is that a problem where people are still putting out their bird feeders in Connecticut at this time of year when they shouldn't? Uh, you mentioned um, uh, with farming, nowadays more people have backyard chickens and they're ha they have beehives now. Is that mm -hmm. all encouraging these bears that we see in Avon, Simsbury, Farmington, these big numbers? Right, right. Well, um, uh, yes. And um, the case with every state that has a bear population is we have great efforts to get the information out to remove attractants around one's home. Um, so, yes, putting bird feeders out, not storing your garbage properly can easily lead to bear visits in your yard or in your neighborhood. Um, backyard chickens have become very popular in recent years, and we're seeing very many cases of bears attracted to backyard chicken coops, maybe to the chicken feed itself, but also killing chickens. Um, one challenge we have in Connecticut is we have such a strong interspersion between forest and, and um, developed areas, residential areas. Um, even, I think even if we uh, were somehow able to get people to completely remove a food attractants in their yards, um, we would still have backyard visits by bears because bear habitat and residential areas are more or less one and the same in a lot of our, in a lot of our towns. Um, I also have to empathize with uh, some of our town residents who've, who've lived in downtown centers that have, you know, their classical, uh, um, residential areas, you know, the downtown where kids ride their bikes and, and people walk on the sidewalks. And for years and years and years, the, um, these have been areas where they haven't had to worry too much about wild animals. But now that forest has regrown and, and bumps right up against residential areas, people that live in downtown Avon, Farmington, Simsbury, places where most people would walk around and say, well, this isn't the wild, this isn't bear habitat, but those people are experiencing bears in their yards.
This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing Paul Rigo. He's a wildlife biologist with the State Department of um, Energy and Environmental Protection. Also with the conversation today is Dr. Ben Killam. Uh, he's also a wildlife biologist. Um, he is the author of uh, several books, including um, the In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. He's joining us today from the studios of Vermont Public Radio, Norwich, Vermont. You can join the conversation, too. Have you seen bears in your backyard? Do you have questions for our guests in studio? The number 860-275-7266. I wanted to take a call. Derek is calling from Brantford. Derek, you're on the show. Hi. I'm very happy to be on the show. Thank you for taking my call. Um, so it was just a quick little anecdote I wanted to provide. And it's funny, I, meant, I heard one of your guests mention Avon so many times. I went to boarding school um, a couple of years ago in Avon, Connecticut. Um, and we sit. the school sits on about 1,000 acres. Um, in Avon, densely, densely wooded, and bear sightings were very, very common um, for us, uh, whether it was walking around in the woods, um, we have a pond that we would we would venture to um, on the weekends and after class, um, and, and even on campus, um, they would uh, just kind of saunter through uh, the quad or the village green, and just very, it was very casual, it was really kind of much ado about nothing, um, really, it, we didn't go grab a gun or bear mace or have a fence up like uh, some some of our uh, our legislative uh, people uh, feel the need to have. Um, but it was it was really just it was really wonderful to see them um, out and about. Um, and obviously, we just stayed behind closed doors, let them kind of run their run their path, and uh, and then off they went. And it was really just a great, um, really great thrill to see these see these great animals. Um, and and, and I, I, I hope as uh, citizens of Connecticut, we don't want to go the route of Californians with, with the grizzly bears. I, I, really, I really hope that um, these rising populations are, uh, are good for everybody and, um, and, can, uh, and we can all kind of live together as, as man and beast. Well, Derek, thank you so much for your call and uh, your comment about uh, some of your uh, bear interactions uh, through the years. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Um, we got a tweet from a listener uh, who writes uh, that he sees bears all the time. He loves seeing them, but he doesn't report these sightings anymore for fear of euthanasia by the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Paul Rigo, what would you say to him? Um, well, first off, we're well aware that that probably the mo the vast majority of bear sightings are not reported to us, um, but we hope that year to year the same pr proportion or percentage are reported, so that makes it a valid index of of the population. Um, uh, we are a management agency. We do have responsibility for uh, dealing with certain levels um, of conflict, certain types of conflict. And, and we do have a policy, as most states do, where there is uh, public safety concern that it, it's prudent um, and the responsible thing to, uh, at times, remove bears from the population that, that show threatening behavior or do threatening behavior. Um, we're, we're like most states. Uh, in doing that, um, we ha we have had bears that have showed aggressive behavior, um, and we we just cannot take the chance of just moving that bear to another town. All our towns are inhabited by humans, um, so it's part of our responsibility. It, it's not uh, it's not something we we take lightly, 
Um, and also, one should put that in perspective, too. Um, as I mentioned just a little while ago, we receive approximately 7,000 bear reports per year at this time. Uh, a lot of people actually would like us to get rid of bears, uh, and a lot of people love them. But if you consider that we have over 7,000 reports per year, uh, we receive approximately 1,000 reports of conflicts per year, um, yet uh, actually uh, taking the action to euthanize a bear, that, that happens maybe once or twice a year. So uh, we're, we're not out there trying to solve every problem by killing bears. And in fact, we're going, uh, putting a lot of effort into educating the public to prevent these problems in the first place. So when someone sees a bear, the state would like you to report if you see a bear, but you're saying that it doesn't mean that um, the state's going to come out and relocate that bear or, in some cases, euthanize a bear. Right, yeah. Actually, we very rarely relocate a bear. About the only time we relocate a bear is if it has wandered very deep into highly unsuitable habitat, so into an urban area such as Hartford. We have we have uh, removed several bears out of out of Hartford that have wandered deep into the city and got stuck. Um, in most cases, uh, if we deal with a bear, we do attempt uh, a technique called aversive conditioning, uh, trying to give a bear a negative experience at the site where it's been a conflict um, and hope that that changes the bear behavior. And at the same time, it's, it's a lesson for for the human residents uh, about changing their behavior, too. What do you think of uh, Ben uh, Killam's uh, proposal that um, if there are nuisance bears coming on property time and time again, maybe it's time for the human to be fined? What do you think about that, Paul? Um, well, I, I have a, some agreement with that. Um, we've actually um, tried to get um, legislation to, to allow us to fine people that, that uh, feed bears uh, after they've been warned not to. Um, and we've had several instances, um, maybe one or two occurring right now, where, where people are overtly feeding bears, and it, it's really a disservice to the bears, it's a disservice to their neighbors, um, and just just leads to um, worse and worse bear behavior. And uh, in, in extreme cases, it could lead to a very serious public safety threat. Um, and you know, the the unfortunate need to remove the bear from the population. I want to take some more listener calls. Again, uh, we're talking about bears today. Uh, Dr. Ben Killam joins us from the studios of VPR in Norwich. And uh, John's calling from Simsbury. John, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I have a question about bear behavior. Uh, last week, just a few days ago, uh, I had a bear bedding down in the woods behind my house my yard is pretty deep. It's about 100 feet back to those woods, and this bear was about 50 feet into it, which I became aware of because my dog was going crazy. And that didn't seem to bother the bear. It would just, when I discovered it, which I think was probably two hours into its being back there, I was spreading mulch on my lawn this whole time on my beds. Uh, and But when I became aware of it, it lifted its head as if to say, would you shut that dog up so I can go back to sleep? Uh, and uh, uh, then I kept checking on it. This was around noon, and I kept checking on it until sundown, until last light, and it was still back there. It seemed like odd behavior. A friend suggested that maybe it was recently out of hibernation and still groggy, but that seemed kind of late in mm -hmm. early May. So uh, what do you think? All right. Thank you, John from Simsbury. Dr. Killam, how would you answer that question? Well, that, that 
kind of behavior kind of suggests she might have had young cubs up the tree uh, that, that he failed to observe. Um, the females will lay at the base of trees for long periods of time uh, until they feel it's safe for their uh, cubs to move, and she might have been waiting until dark for that to happen. Uh, Anne's calling from New Milford. Anne, you're on the show. Hi. Um, so as I say, the Lakeville Journal um, uh, often ran a little piece at the bottom of their front page about local wildlife sightings, and many, uh, I recommend people go back and look at them. But the one that I'm thinking of was a man went to the downtown, like the type of downtown your guest was talking about, a small town, and he went at 11 o'clock at night to the ATM, and he turned around to go back to his car, and there was a bear between him and the car. And um, it's just that, you know, uh, it reminds you that you might like a bear very much from outside your window or from inside your house, you know, as it passes through. But it's a little bit different when it's between you and your car. And um, and I think there's, you know, a lot of people had, uh, even Lakeville had other stories like that over the years. Um, and um, also, I refer to something in New Milford where a man didn't control his dog and let it out to scare the bear away and uh, ended up shooting the bear because he said the bear was threatening his dog. And it turned out there were cubs up the tree, which the, the um, Connecticut... Uh, people did allow to to uh go on they tagged them and let them out and uh anyway i don't know whatever happened to those twin cubs but anyway so so that's all i just said local journal great source of local wildlife well, thank you very much uh so dr killam um, i'm curious if the cubs were let to go on their way what would happen to them without their mother well it depends on on their age uh if it was late in the fall and they were already fat they'd, uh, they'd do very well um there's a point about dogs. Uh, it's usually the aggressive dog that makes a bear uh, retaliate. Bears have very little interest in dogs unless they've been bit. And the behavior of, of sicking a, your dog on a bear in your yard is not a very good choice. And if your bear, if you let your dog out and you've got a bird feeder and the dog uh, incidentally comes in contact with the bear, don't rescue your dog. Your dog, the dog and the bear can work out the details. Uh, I had a situation in, in <clears throat> New Hampshire where a woman called me and said her dog had just been mauled by a bear. And and uh, then she finished the story and said, I opened the door and the dog ran into the house and it didn't have a mark on it. The bear had soft-pawed the dog. She says, then I looked out above my bird feeder and there was two tiny cubs above the bird feeder. Well, obviously the bird feeder was uh, the end of the story and and clearly the reason the bear was there in the first place mm -hmm. but that bear uh, was the dog wasn't aggressive towards the bear and the bear just used did not use claws or teeth on the dog so every encounter is not a bad one but aggressive dogs that bite bears will will create bears that mm -hmm. retaliate this is where we live i'm lucy nalpathanchel that's dr ben killam a wildlife biologist author of in the company of bears what black bears have taught me about intelligence and intuition in studio paul rigo wildlife biologist with the state department of energy and environmental protection coming up we'll take your calls including should lawmakers approve a bill here in connecticut to allow bear hunting 860-275-7266 digging up insects from old tree stump been too long since you were plump Two little cubs wrestling around, climbing up a branch, then falling down, climbing up a branch. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about black bears. You may see them in your backyard. Is it time for Connecticut to allow these bears to be hunted? To talk about that, we're joined on the phone by Rick Jacobson, Wildlife Director for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Rick, welcome to the show. Hi. Glad to join you. So there's a bill before uh, the General Assembly. Tell us what the bill would do if approved this session. Well, in its current form, it would establish um, a process through which we would adopt regulations that would provide for a bear hunt. And how, uh, com- how often has this been before the General Assembly? Is this something that um, may happen this session? Well, it was, uh, there was a bill introduced in the Environment Committee, and uh, the Environment Committee did consider it, took public comment, debated the bill, and took a vote on that bill. And ultimately, the Environment Committee did vote to forward as a joint favorable substitute bill, um, that bill out of committee. So uh, my understanding is, at present, that bill is eligible for being brought forward and debated in the Senate. And um, from the DEEP standpoint, um, is it necessary to have a, a, a law on the books to allow bear hunting at this time? Um, well, it, uh, such a bill, should it become a statute, does provide one more tool to us to be able to manage this growing bear population in the state. Um, so in that regard, it would be a valuable tool to have available to us when and if and when we would actually take advantage of that tool, it would depend upon a whole host of factors, including public engagement. And if this were to become a law, it wouldn't be open season on all bears. There would be set limits in place? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, we have to see what final bill comes out of the legislature, should they choose to pass it. And then that will be the foundation on which we'll structure any regulations. Um, at the moment, we don't have a specific plan in place because because, again, it's dependent upon what the final statute looks like. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> well, we, we know when this is brought up in the past, there are um, opponents to something like this, if it were to become a law. Annie Hornish is joining us now, Connecticut Senior State Director of the Humane Society of the United States. Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, again, before lawmakers, a bill that uh, could allow bear hunting um, in the state, uh, why um, is your organization opposed to that? Well, we, we feel that we should be protecting our black bears, not hunting them for trophies. Uh, this, is, this is a trophy hunting proposal, and it's ostensibly in response to an increase in human bear conflicts. Uh, but there are 10, uh, science supports uh, not having a hunt. There's 10 recent scientific studies that show that trophy hunting does nothing to stop human bear conflicts. And uh, the reason's obvious to most people. Uh, hunters usually hunt deep in the woods, uh, and they're removing non-problem bears from the population, not the ones that are rummaging through neighborhood garbage cans. So um, there are... Uh, uh, simple common sense measures uh, to reduce conflicts uh, if and when they occur. And and this was already stated earlier, um, but most of it involves public education uh, to teach people how to remove what's attracting the bears. And that's oftentimes and usually accessible garbage uh, or things like pet food left outside or bird feeders or barbecue grills that are not cleaned. You know, people aren't Uh, intentionally, by and large, they're not intentionally feeding bears uh, in their backyards. It's mostly this unintentional feeding that's 
uh, behind virtually all human bear conflicts. And the remedy is public education. I'll let uh, Rick Jacobson respond um, to what you said about this measure is about trophy hunting. How would you respond to that, Rick? Well, I'm not exactly sure what people mean when they say this is a trophy hunt. Um, Most people that I'm aware of that bear hunt do it very similarly to how they might pursue deer hunting, for instance, where it's a a source of wholesome, low-fat, antibiotic-free protein source that's locally sourced that they use for their families. So in that regard, it's not that much different than deer hunting. I wanted to go back to one of the experts we have today, uh, uh, Ben Killam, a wildlife biologist, author of In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. You live in New Hampshire. New Hampshire allows uh, uh, bear hunting. Uh, Ben, what's an effective way uh, to manage uh, the bear population um, if, again, it, it is growing, as state officials say here in Connecticut? Well, I, I think it's correct that, that uh, bear hunting is a, is a tool. Uh, it's also in a state that hasn't had it before. It will be very controversial without any question. Uh, in New Hampshire, bear hunting has been allowed uh, for a long time. Uh, the bear population has grown despite uh, bear hunting, uh, that there, our habitat is uh, in good shape and, and we can handle a lot of bears. Uh, the bears population is managed by uh, a social caring capacity, uh, surveys of people uh, getting responses of how many bears they'll tolerate rather than a biological caring capacity. And uh, the biological caring capacity could handle a lot more bears uh, than we have in New Hampshire. Uh, Connecticut has a much greater social uh, problem. I mean, the density of humans uh, on the landscape is far greater, that, that interface between bears and people. Uh, so it, it's really, the, the, it, it is a tool, and I don't expect uh, the state of Connecticut uh, would be radical uh, in how they remove bears. Uh, their population is not that high. Uh, it wouldn't sustain uh, a removal of a great number of bears before uh, uh, it might be in decline. So. Well, I want to thank uh, Rick Jacobson from the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, also Annie Hornish, Connecticut Senior State Director for the Humane Society of the U.S., uh, for giving their thoughts, different perspective, again, on a, on a bill, it's not a law yet here in Connecticut, that could allow bear hunting, black bear hunting in the near future. I wanted to take another call. John's calling from Hartford. John, you're on the show. Oh, hi. I just have a comment, or actually a, uh, uh, a comment regarding uh, uh, the situation that happened last uh, weekend. I was out on the woods at Sleeping Giant State Park, uh, just behind Quinnipiac University. Uh, and if you don't know, it's a, a fairly heavily traveled park with a lot of trails uh, just behind the university. And uh, I noticed, I was up there with my wife, and I noticed that uh, uh, there was an inordinate amount of what I thought were bear markings on the trees. Um, and I'd, I'd never seen that many bear markings on this heavily traveled uh, trail. And I was wondering if they could, if the, the professors could comment on um, why they thought there would be, I, I could be wrong, they, they may not have been bear markings, but it sure looked like uh, bear markings on the trees. And there was just an inordinate number of them uh, in this heavily traveled area. All right, John, thank you for that question. I'll let Paul Rigo, who works for the state, um, also a wildlife uh, biologist, answer that question about Sleeping Giant, a very popular park in okay. Hampton. 
Well, first off, that's an area of the state where bears are not quite too common yet. Um, bears do mark trees, um, and Ben could probably talk about this too, that they, they will reach up and essentially just take a big bite out of the bark of a tree almost as high as they can reach. The male bears typically do this. Um, tends not to, not to be um, highly concentrated where they do that. So I, I do wonder if it truly was all bear markings um, because usually they don't appear in real dense clusters of, of markings like that. Um, so I, I guess a, a, it's just there remains a question mark there if it was true bear markings or not. I wanted to go back to, again, Bill Killam, joining us from VPR Studios in Norwich, Vermont. Uh, you are the author of this book, In the Company of Bears, What Black Bears Have Taught Me About Intelligence and Intuition. Um, you say that, bear, that bears are very social. Um, what can humans learn from bears, Ben? Well, there, there's a lot that we, we can learn from bears about ourselves. Uh, bears uh, operate on very primitive uh, behaviors, which we operate on as well, but we're unaware of. Uh, and I've often said that if you know we were aware of our primitive beginnings, we might use our head better in managing the problems that we have, uh, because a lot of our responses and our emotional responses to problems uh, come from those primitive beginnings. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today again from VPR Studios in Norwich, uh, Ben Killam. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you for having me. And I wanted to just read a tweet from a listener who writes, we should promote the black bear as a tourist attraction, similar to what Connecticut does with bald eagles. I'll let Paul Rigo, the Connecticut wildlife biologist, take that one. Well, um, we, don't, we don't have the good bear viewing areas like Alaska has where the bears concentrate at salmon streams. Um, yeah, it is part of the outdoor experience, and we do mean to perpetuate the population of bears in the state. We don't want to completely eradicate bears from the state. We want, want them to be here for future generations to uh, potentially get a glimpse of, um, but hopefully not in your garage or, or breaking into your home. So, yeah, uh, bears are here. They're in our northwest woods, and hopefully people that go out hiking maybe get a glimpse of one, and it makes their day. Well, thank you again, Paul Rigo from the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Today's show was produced by Jeff Tyson. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.